Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. Our guest is Dr. Diane Kane, and our topic is the widows of September 11th. Where are they now six years later? Dr. Diane Kane has provided crisis intervention services to first responders since 1994. She is currently the assistant director of the New York Fire Department's Counseling Service Unit and has been responsible for the development of post-9-11 services. Dr. Kane has worked tirelessly and been a relentless advocate for the FDNY families impacted by the World Trade Center attacks. She also facilitates groups for women who lost their firefighter husbands on September 11th. Dr. Kane co-authored the book, FDNY Crisis Counseling, Innovative Responses to Firefighters, Families, and Communities. In addition, she is an adjunct associate professor of social work at Hunter College. Welcome to the show, Diane. Thank you, Heidi. It's really wonderful to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, Diane, uh, you work in a very tough area and a tough field. Um, and Heidi has told me so much about, and I've met you, and I did a little bit of the work, but you have done some great things. Now, I wondered, uh, we talked about this being uh, where, where are the widows six years later, and I know a lot of people are curious about that. And you work with basically the firefighters? Yes, the firefighters and their families, so these would be firefighter widows. Uh-huh. And where are they six years later? Well, you know, like most groups, they're in many different places, but I think the first thing I want to say is that they are really um, heartening to watch in terms of their um, resilience and their growth uh, and their strength. Um, They are forging new lives, uh, and they are finding new ways to honor the deceased and the memory. Uh, they're raising children. Uh, some are raising grandchildren. Uh, some are thinking about their careers that perhaps they hadn't had in the past or going back to school. Um, they really are working very, very hard to think about uh, themselves and, and the future, even though, of course, they carry the memory and the pain with them. You know, that's great for our audience out there because a lot of them are newly bereaved and this is what we try to give them. There's no Heidi Hope about the future. Absolutely, and that the pain and agony that they're in right now, initially feeling like my life has been destroyed, they will not always be in that place. So let's talk for them about how these ladies, and how many women are there of the... Oh, my God. We had 343 deceased firefighters. I would say probably about 60% of those were married or more. So there's a lot. So you really have quite, we call it in the research world, a sample, right? Quite a sample, quite a range. And also I want to add, in case there are any listeners uh, who lost a loved one and they were not yet married, we also had a a fairly large number of girlfriends and fiancés that we supported as well. Now, uh, do you continue to support them? We do in a variety of ways. Uh, we still have some groups that go on on a regular basis, but we also do a lot of workshops and events that bring the community together in various ways and try and respond to newly emerging needs. 
You know, that's a great thing that you're working with girlfriends and fiancés because uh, I think they're quite an unacknowledged group. Don't you I was just, I was just going to say that, and when you're, you know, girlfriend, girlfriends and fiancés and people that lived with firefighters are just as important in their lives and many many times as as a spouse. Yes. And oftentimes uh, we'll hear from people on the grief blog that uh, their boyfriend died or, or whatever, and uh, it's difficult for them because they don't have any control over the funeral or they could even be living with them. I'm sure you've seen that um, situation where they've been living with them or whatever, and yet the uh, biological family uh, or the mar- the, uh, the wife has um, control over the situation. Absolutely, and in, some way, in, in all of those ways I think they felt quite isolated and it was in some ways more difficult for them to begin the process of of grief and grieving uh, than even for some of the widows. Mm-hmm. You know what, Mom? I wanted to go back to September 11, 2001, if you don't mind. Okay. And pull us back for a minute because I'm thinking, here I'm thinking about Diane. She's working in, you know, the counseling service unit. It's September 11th. I know she you went... All of a sudden you find out that there's been this horrific tragedy. And then eventually, I guess, I don't know, you can tell me more, but in a few days you realize, oh, my God, there's 343 firefighters that are dead and they have family members. And I'm just wondering, I mean, that totally turned your world upside down, obviously, and your job and your life. And I'm wondering, at what point did you realize these firefighters had families and widows and we need to put services in? Well, I think those were kind of a little bit separate. The recognizing that they had families, I think, happened very quickly and right away because um, the family members were calling. Mm -hmm. Uh, As soon as we had a place for them to go, they were showing up. Uh, They were in firehouses. Uh, They, Of course, we didn't know at that time and for a long time who was missing. Uh, So they, they and their grief and their anxiety were right there. But the second part of your question, Heidi, about recognizing the need to provide services, of course, was a little bit slower. Mm-hmm. Um, we did right away uh, decentralize our office. We had a single Manhattan location, which is not where most families lived. So we did kind of set up outposts in order to be able to uh, ha- give them easier access to us. But what really happened was the fire department itself organized a big family meeting, uh, I would say about five days after the 11th, at a hotel in Midtown and provided transportation and invited all of the families of the missing, and that was defined by whoever people felt they wanted to bring, and brought them together. And that was very powerful. Um, I think I felt quite uncertain and nervous about how that would go because there was really very little information available at that time. And I thought, oh, my God, we're going to have hundreds of grieving people and not much to say to them. What will this be like? And it was clearly what families needed. They needed to be together. They needed to be given what limited information there was. But mostly they just needed to look around the room and understand that they were part of a tragic but supportive community. And right after that is when we started then recognizing it was not too soon. I had thought it was too soon to begin to hold groups, and it was not too soon at all. It was exactly what was needed. Uh, It's an interesting thought that um, 
that the nation maybe has grief fatigue or people who aren't around. What what are your thoughts about that? I think that's true. I, I think the widows especially were sensitive to grief fatigue well before the rest of us. And uh, early on, I would say after the first, definitely after the second anniversary, felt that the people they interfaced with were, quote, fatigued and didn't want to hear about it anymore. And uh, that was, at that time, quite painful for them uh, because they were so filled with grief and memory and needing to process it, and it began to make them feel quite isolated from the rest of uh, their world, which, of course, made the connection they had with one another and with the groups that we offered quite beneficial to them. Now, that's so one of the things for our audience out there who have recently lost a spouse, the group thing works. Is that yeah. what I, you're thinking, getting together, there's grief fatigue, maybe after a year people are tired of hearing about it? Yeah, you know, it's a kind of funny dynamic because later on, you know, many people felt they had to defend coming to group. People would say, you're still going to group? Mm-hmm. And I felt that... Later on, it was almost more important because other people didn't want to hear it and that if group provided them with a place where they knew they could share what they needed and talk about their loss if they needed to, that it perhaps helped them not have to talk about that with people that they could sense were uncomfortable or didn't want to hear it. So I think there is a place for the support group of others who have had the similar experience, not only in the very beginning when it's helpful, but also going on in time. Yeah, because uh, one of the things you can do is share ideas about uh, what you're doing. And, and what's helped. And dating. And and, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's not all about the loss and the day of the loss. It really, as you say, is about building for the future, and people can be tremendously supportive and helpful to one another about taking some of those risks. Mm-hmm. So groups uh, are a good thing for some people. Some people don't like groups. Do you have people who don't want to come to groups? Oh, absolutely, and group was always an option, never uh, mandated. Um, people came and left, and some stayed a long time, and others passed through. Um but it, you're right, it is not for everyone. For some people, they enjoyed the support of the group but felt that to do their really personal work, they wanted to do that individually and some other kind of counseling or supportive help uh, or talking to a, a, a person from their clergy. All of that, I think, has a role and a place. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was nice about the group is people could be in your group and they could also be seeing an individual therapist Absolutely. if they wanted to. I think that's one of the important things about group. If people want to see other people, you know, the Compassionate Friends group we do, and I know there are a lot of widows groups, um, that you you should be able to go to group and then have other other uh, support too. Right, absolutely. Because different people need different things, and people also need different things at different times. Mm -hmm. And I think being open to that and not sort of thinking that one type of help is better or worse than another is very important for people to understand. Or that that you're backtracking because you uh, haven't been to group for a year and now suddenly you're feeling down and and need some support. Absolutely. So, so Diane, it sounds like your groups were open and people could come in as they needed it and then they could leave if they felt like they no longer needed it 
and then come back if they felt like they needed it in the future. Is that is that right? Yeah, they were, and mm-hmm. that's kind of a mixed thing. You know, there is right. certainly something to be said for the, you know, real safety of a known group where the membership is consistent and constant all the time. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, needs change. And because of the nature and the size of this event and the number of people affected, uh, we chose to keep them open. And one of the positive things of that has been that there is a, a large network of people who, even though they didn't see each other weekly, um, know one another and can reconnect when they need to. So networking can be supportive. Yes. So what what um, were the biggest challenges you saw yeah. in losing a husband in a terrorist attack? Well, I would say that in the very, very beginning, uh, one of the biggest challenges is just getting out of bed in the morning mm-hmm. and getting your clothes on and facing the day. Mm-hmm. And I, I say that because I think that in the beginning people... The widows tended to often not recognize how much just that took. And it is really important to kind of feel proud of oneself for doing the basics. Mm-hmm. Many of these were young women with young children, and they felt enormous, and Heidi knows all about this as well, you know, they felt enormous pressure to be everything for their children and to uh, be able to help their children through it. And that took enormous courage and energy and reserve. It's hard to see your children suffer, you know, and be sad. Absolutely. Yeah, and have your own sorrow. Um, Did you see a difference between younger and older widows? Did you have older widows? Yeah, we had some older widows. I think there is. um, I was fortunate in, in one of my groups to have a mix. Uh, in that sense, and it was a good mix in that the younger women, uh, of course, were mostly coming to group exhausted, mm-hmm. ready to uh, sort of not know what else to do about their children, wishing for a moment to themselves, feeling they couldn't do this anymore, often. And the older widows, whose kids were grown and out of the house, uh, even if they lived there, they were out of the house, and they felt lonely and isolated and bored and wished for more stimulation, if you will. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a kind of good balance that they could understand that there is no good time to go through this mm-hmm. and that each stage of life presents its own pressures. Oh, that's a good point. A friend of mine's, uh, actually my husband's partner um, died a few years ago, and she was in her probably 40s, maybe early 50s, and she said it was difficult uh, because there aren't a lot of younger widows around. And when she would go to a widow's group, it would be older, older widows. Women. Right. But yeah. I, I like how Diane also said there's no good time to go through this because we don't want to get into a competitive thing where my grief is worse than your grief or my loss is bigger than yours. And like you said, it was painful for all the widows, regardless of how old they were. Um, They had lost their spouse. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they were, for the most part, um, relatively suburban women Mm -hmm. uh, who lived in communities that didn't have many single women. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, these were couple communities, and so their social network were couples, and... It was difficult. They, one of their greatest challenges that they talked about was not feeling comfortable, even with 
close, close friends. They felt like the fifth wheel. They didn't want to go along alone to be part of their usual social circle. And so the fact that they began to have a network with one another where they could go to dinner or a movie or something like that was tremendously helpful. You know, I, I know a, 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 new social, a new social network, right? They needed to find yeah. new a single people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know some of them uh, travel together and went on vacation together with the kids. And I'm just thinking of our audience out there who didn't have a group, who don't have a reference group. Difficult for them. Mm-hmm. Very much so. I would encourage them to seek out other single people, even if they are not all widows. But while the issues of loss may be different, say, for someone who's widowed versus someone who's divorced or never married, there is, I think, value in having a group of people whose desire to spend time with other women or other single men, if it's a male listener, uh, are are, uh, important to them. Uh, and sometimes that brings new perspective and new ideas or new activities. Uh-huh. And how long would you say it would take for somebody to get in the feeling that they could move out into mm-hmm. that? I think it varies tremendously. Um, you know, I'm not talking, I want to be really clear, because uh, this came up a lot, that when I talk about these things, I'm not focused on dating. You know, I'm not right. talking about that kind of socialization. I'm talking about that you can't grieve 24-7, mm-hmm. that just getting out to a movie <laughs> is right. really helpful. And, and, and I would give think, yourself permission. Right, and I would think, Diane, that it, that as far as when should you do this, whenever you begin to feel isolated and like, hey, my friends aren't there, my friends are all couples, I need to find some somebody to go out with and, some, like you said, some friends that are single, or raising their kids as single parents so that I can go do things with them. Good point, honey. Yeah. I want it about uh, what singles can do to, and, and I guess we'll call them singles now, widows, widowers, um, what a single person anyway can do to get out there, not dating, but just to get themselves um, out of bed. And also, um, I think with younger widows where they've got um, children, sometimes they can just, stay in that community and not do something for themselves, don't you think? Absolutely. I think that was really difficult. It was a long time before we could schedule an event that didn't involve the children and uh, have the women come out. And that was a way that group became really important because group kind of became the one thing it was okay to look forward to Mm -hmm. and the one place it was okay to say this I'm doing because it's important for me. How long did that take just for our audience out there? I think that started early on with the groups and that that feeling lasted certainly through the first year where it was hard to get permission to do most anything else. For yourself? For yourself. They would, however, do things with their children and so uh, that was important and it's important people can make arrangements to do things. You know, there are other single people who have children. Sometimes you can find that through your child's school or play group or in the park even to make a play date kind of, mm-hmm. but stay around and have a cup of coffee and just talk to another adult. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's been some research done on widows. Um, 
talking about what the first year is difficult, the second year is, you know, very difficult, the third year they're starting to feel a little better. Did you see any of that in the fourth year? I think we did. I think for us the overlay of the trauma and the way in which this event happened uh, played a factor Mm-hmm. as well as just the enormity and the relentless media attention uh, made it quite difficult to get to really grieve the loss of the person. Uh, there was so much pomp and circumstance, if you will, from both the department and the newscasters that I think it made it very, very difficult. Well, but people felt like sec- it was kind of a universe. It's my loss, too, or something yes. in the nation, right? Yes. And that was so difficult for people when, you know, whoever they would run into would want to tell them their 9-11 story. Mm-hmm. But uh, the second year, no question, was worse than the first in terms of the first year being very numb mm-hmm. and the second year being... Also, don't you think in the first year there's a little bit of, I did it, I got through that, I got through that, I got through that? Well, and I would think with 9-11, the first year was... As Diane said, there were so many memorials and so much media and so many events, and they were, you know, you're kind of in a fog going through all that. In the second year, it's like, this is my life. Reality is set in now. Right. Yes. You know, I think oftentimes people talk in uh, when someone dies about, you know, the worst is when everyone goes home. You know, they stop bringing mm-hmm. food and they stop visiting, and then I'm left alone, and that might be weeks after the death uh, or, or a month. And here it almost felt like that was a year, mm-hmm. a year of constant attention. And then sort of uh, when everything quieted down a little bit and the first year was over and they still didn't feel better, I think there was this really problematic expectation of feeling better in a year. And, you know, when they didn't, I think it became enormously difficult and painful in year two. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was saying that we had an email from Emmy, Emily from Arlington, Virginia, and she said, uh, I saw your show was going to be on 9-11. My husband was killed when the plane hit the Pentagon. I've remarried and find that my in-laws are resentful about the money I received after my husband's death. I thought that was very interesting, Emily. I want to thank you for that email because <clears throat> I think that um, money uh, also played a factor in 9-11, but also in a lot of deaths where there are financial settlements because uh, people have to justify their loved one's life, which is very strange. Yeah, I think it has been a, an enormously complicated issue, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you sort of normalize it a bit by bringing out the fact that this is not only a 9-11 situation but that there are other situations in which because of various insurances, et cetera, family members unfortunately are faced with having to put what feels like a dollar value on, on a life, which of course is impossible. Right. It's, it's very strange. When our son was killed, we actually had to hire a lawyer. And not that we were suing them. The insurance company said we need to have you hire a lawyer because we need to have the lawyer um, justify your son's life, how old he was, what he was worth. They put a, actually put a price on his life. Right, which, of course, was part of what went on with the 9-11 fund, and people were having to really put together these enormous documents um, 
that were very, for the most part, very painful. And as your Emily, I think it was, who, who sent the email, yeah. that it created lots of issues amongst extended family members in terms of who got what, was entitled to what. My own feeling, and believe me, there were many hours spent not just with widows but with all different family members talking about this issue, and I think, you know, there's so much anger that is connected to loss in general and perhaps this type of loss in particular that I do feel that money also became kind of a a lightning rod for those feelings. And mm-hmm. that was so unfortunate because it created additional loss in some families where family rifts related to that became so great that people suffered additional loss of contact with living relatives. Mm, that is really unfortunate. And mm-hmm. and as you say, um, there is a normalizing of it. I mean, this isn't just the 9-11 families that go through. Uh, go through this with the money. Uh, that article that was in the New York Times that we were talking about, Heidi, I think right. you mentioned in there that one of the mothers um, was upset. Her daughter was killed in, um, I don't think it was the Pentagon, the other plane crash, and she said she couldn't understand why the pilot's life was worth more than her daughter's life. Mm-hmm. And that is the sad part. I mean, if it's, well, that's the reality. If you're a child, you're not worth as much as you are if you're the provider, and that's the way the value of our society is growing. Right. And I've got to say something else about the whole money thing. There has been a lot of negative press about the fact that the, these widows and the 9-11 families got a lot of compensation or, you know, what people thought was a lot. And the reality is, from every single person I've ever talked to, which is a lot of people, that had someone die in 9-11, they say it over and over, we, would, we, we, want, our, we want our husband here. We want our brother here. We want our son here. It's, we don't care about the money. No, matter, no amount of money is going to replace the person we loved. Absolutely. It doesn't replace it. Well, Diane, I wanted to ask you another question. Do you think that the healing process has taken longer because it was traumatic uh, that when the husband's died? Do you have no any thoughts about, that? about it? No question about it because I think people had to recognize that they were traumatized along with grieving. And they relived the trauma of that day over and over, both in their inner mind, but also because the media would attend to it so much. Mm-hmm. And for many people, they didn't really recognize the traumatic piece. Mm-hmm. So that the usual grief that would go on, even in a group where people talk about the person and the loss and the memories would be constantly infused with revisiting that day and trying to find a way to give voice to what had happened and all of their horrific and traumatic visualizations of what perhaps had happened. Now, how do you deal with that for folks out there who have had a spouse die in a traumatic way? uh, What do you suggest to people who are replaying that? Well, I think self-monitoring, I mean, trauma and and some self-education. I think learning a little bit about trauma, and there's tons of information on the Internet, just knowing 
the signs and symptoms of traumatic loss, of traumatic reaction, whether it is a revisiting, whether it is a withdrawal and numbness, uh, I think can help you. And you need to understand that you may need some professional help to deal with the trauma part of your loss. It's not going to spare you the entire grief process. If anything, it helps ready you to be able to mourn the loss of your loved one. But if you're having flashbacks, if you're not able to concentrate, and if you don't see that getting a little bit better in, in, what in time weeks, frame in months, you, you know, it ought to be gradual. You know, if you're not sleeping and you're not eating. After how long? After, I would say, the first three or four weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, and even during that time, one would hope to see gradual progression. Right, so Certainly it's progression. Certainly if you're not for. getting dressed in the morning, if you can't interact with your children, those are of concern. And most importantly, you can get some help with that in a way that helps you suffer less. Mm-hmm. And I also want to add something to that because I think that's a really important point. I would say also if you have anger that's causing serious health problems and wreaking havoc on relationships, that that's another sign that you really need to go talk with somebody. Because I think we, you know, anger is a normal way to feel after a, a terrorist attack, a homicide. It's normal to have a lot of anger, but in some cases it's going to cause problems with people's lives and, you know, their health. I want to talk about your book. Is this book something that an individual, is it mainly for counselors or would this be a good book for a widow? Do you have information in there? I think it's mixed. I think we tried to write to an audience who um, would be able to enjoy parts of it, um, maybe not all of it. Um, I think that the widows I've talked to who read pieces of it, I think there's a discussion about the groups and what they looked like that was of interest to them and um, kind of a, an overall sense. It's, it's interesting to people who have some connection or interest with uniform service culture. There's a wonderful chapter that Sally Lynch did about about culture in, in fire departments. So it is a, to a mixed audience. All right, and, and they'd get it through Amazon, right? Yeah, they can get it through Amazon. And we've got it up on You've our got it on your blog. website, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. The grief blog. Uh, I wanted to ask, since we called it, where are they now six years later? And mm-hmm. I wanted to say that um, it sounds like they're doing well from what you said at the, the first of the show. Yes, absolutely. Um, they are. They are forging new territory while finding ways to really honor the, um, the loss uh, member of the family. Um, I really find it so interesting that um, the women that I know who have repartnered, which is by no means the majority, but there are Well, many. I think that's interesting for our audience to yeah, know well, that there have not too many have repartnered after six No, years. I don't have good stats on it. The survey we did about a year ago uh, where about 150 widows responded and it, amongst that group uh, there was a relatively small percentage, I would say under 20%, mm-hmm. who were, you know, dating or seriously dating or, or partnered. But, of course, there are many others who did not respond uh, to the survey. But so, so from our audience we could take that that 
uh, people are happy going on doing things even though they haven't repartnered, yeah. and, uh, but there is a possibility of repartnering if you want to. Again, you know, we have this um, difference in how people respond. Absolutely. I think that's such an important message, Gloria, because I think we live in a society that's so partnered that, you know, that can't be that, you know, I think it's dangerous to make that the measure of how am I doing. Right. Uh, I so, also so think talk that a little bit, so we, we have to, under time pressure, but yes. I wanted to get you to give our audience some ideas about what people are doing, uh, you know, what they're doing to honor, but also taking care of themselves. What if some of the women, and think, Heidi, you can chime in on this too, what have they gone on I to do? I think some of what the women, especially women with children, I think that to recognize that single parenting is tough and it's different mm-hmm. and to learn to, you know, kind of give yourself permission to not have to do everything that two people did as one person and to know that you can love your kids to pieces but it's not necessarily enough. You know, you need time out. You need to have interests of your own and friends and dinner away. Mm-hmm. So I think just learning that, beginning to take a class, or pick up an old hobby, uh, or take a trip um, to be brave enough to travel if you were not the one who kind of put trips together or went off on your own in the past. You know, my aunt was a single uh, woman. Her husband died, and she said the best thing to do is go alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She used to go on trips alone, and she said you meet more fascinating people. Absolutely. could not be embarrassed to be alone. I've talked to widows who in the beginning felt like going to a movie alone or having dinner alone, like labeled them as a big lonely person. And that's really important. And I think for young widows especially, and if they were partnered when they were quite young, to recognize also that you're a different person after this experience and you Mm -hmm. need to take time to learn who am I now after this event. And who am I as a single as a single parent? And one thing I want to add, which you've kind of touched on, is the widows have really become confident in their role as single parents. Yes, yes, which is tremendously tremendously empowering. Mm-hmm. You know, to really feel like I am doing a really good job with my children. Mm-hmm. That's great. And uh, well, I had worked with a widow who um, ran, started running again, and, and set up um, an event once a year for her husband to honor her husband, too. Yes. So they're wonderful um, things for continuing bonds, which is great for the kids. Too. I was many say that started yep. exercising, going to the gym. That was a wonderful thing to do because it also really helps to counteract the stress factor. So that was tremendous running or exercising in some way. And starting out there for you folks who are newly bereaved, walking around the block is yeah, is a good start. Good thing. Yeah, right. Diane, like you were saying, just getting up, getting your shoes matched. Absolutely. Getting your blouse on. You know. Like you said, be proud for doing the basics. Reward yourself for doing the basics because grieving is a full-time job. It's a lot of work. Absolutely. So recognizing that that really is doing a lot mm-hmm. in the very beginning. I just wanted to ask you, what kind of issues do you think, and we'll just have to briefly do this, but what do you think that the people are still struggling with after six years? I think they're struggling with living with what will always be many unanswered questions about the event itself. I think they're still struggling with 
um, accepting that this isn't the life I kind of signed on for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think those are hard, hard things. I think even, this is another myth, you know, even women who are repartnered happily right. still have those moments. Right. And that's yeah. important, too, especially even around a new, the anniversary. Even a new partner cannot replace someone that you've loved and lost. Absolutely. Um, yeah. What about advice for people out there that are struggling and that are newly bereaved and have lost their spouses? Find someone you can talk to. It can be a friend who who really can listen. It can be a therapist. It can be part of Compassionate Friends. Find someone Mm -hmm. that you really feel you can just be very present and real with. Don't feel you have to mask your feelings and be all alone with it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Diane. That was a, a very good piece of advice, and we appreciate your being on the show and all the work you're doing. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate and thank you for doing what you do. I think it's filling a tremendous need that people have. Oh, well, thank you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.